Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, founder of Achievable. Our affordable $199 GRE course includes everything you need to ace your GRE. Full textbook, tons of GRE questions that are backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. As always, if you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, please contact Tyler at tyler.achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Let's get started. So today I have someone very special as a guest uh, podcast host with me, Charles Biblios. Um, he most recently did a 24-hour G- was it GRE or GMAT live stream? Um, yeah. <laughs> this was a GMAT live stream. Um, yeah, 24-hour GMAT live stream to raise money from Ukraine. Uh, so really happy to have you on, Charles. And I feel like the best way to kick this off would probably be for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tyler. Uh, my name is Charles Bibelos. I run a little tutoring company called GMAT Ninja, and we also do you know, GRE and LSAT and executive assessment. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit I've been teaching GRE since 2001, so I'm in year number 22 of it now. Um, and yeah. I mostly do one-on-one <laughs> tutoring and every once in a while I do something crazy like a live 24-hour live stream on YouTube. <laughs> or a podcast, right? Exactly. Well, that's cool. So, so tell me, I mean, you started in 2001. How did you get started in, in tutoring? <laughs> yeah, good question. So it was kind of an accident and I, and I feel like a lot of people who work in test prep have stories like this, but I was, uh, at the time I was just getting started as a professional dancer and I had dropped out of, uh, undergrad at Stanford. Um, and I got in my first dance company and it was a, it was a trapeze dance company in Tucson, Arizona mm-hmm. of all places. And, uh, at the time I was working in a restaurant, typical dancer, right? I was working in a restaurant to pay the bills and, uh, you know, got my offer to be part of my first professional company and walk into work one day and my manager's like, Hey, did you, did you get that role in that, that company? I was like, yeah. She's like, you don't look that happy. I was like, yeah, I found out what it pays. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. She's like, well, what do you mean? You can keep working here. I was like, no, it's such a huge time commitment. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. I can't work in a restaurant anymore. Right. And she's like, Charles, <clears throat> where'd you, where'd you drop out of? I was like, well, that's a weird question. I, I dropped out of Stanford. Why? She's like, what was your SAT score? I was like, this is a weird question, but I, I was like, I, I don't remember, but it was, it was pretty good. Why? And she's like, well, my husband runs the <laughs> Kaplan Center uh, a couple blocks away from here. How about you go talk to him? Cause he can probably work with your schedule. And so I got there and even though it was kind what, of what a, what a cool lady also. Oh yeah, she was awesome. It was so great yeah. of her to do that. Where she's like, "Well, if you're going to quit this job, cool. Um, go work for my you husband." Ta- yeah, you seem like you. <laughs> yeah, if you dropped out of Stanford, you you probably could teach somebody some SAT <laughs> things. Yeah, somebody something. Um, and he actually started me on GRE. I, I barely ever taught SAT at Kaplan. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and I was like, you know, hey Jeff, you realize that I dropped out of school? He's like, yeah, it's cool. Just don't tell anybody. Um, so I started. <laughs> I kind of became one of their, you know, grad student guys doing uh, GRE and then GMAT. And uh, 22 years later and all sorts of random side adventures, you know, here I am still doing GRE and GMAT. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and your, your tutoring business has been going really well from what I understand. Do you, do you want to talk about that at all? Just like kind of like how it's going or, or any sort of highlights for just so the viewers get a sense? Sure. I mean, so I, I you know, I, I was never really out to build a, a scalable business or anything like that. I think the thing that I'm really passionate about as a teacher is kind of getting inside people's heads and kind of unpeeling that onion and figuring out, okay, mm-hmm. for this particular individual, what is it really? Um, because I, I do think we're in an era now, especially where there, there's so much great content 
um, out there for for free or for very cheap, right? Like if you want to mm-hmm. learn geometry formulas, it's really easy to get that stuff now. Um, so you know, we kind of became, I think, the company that serves people who are a little bit at the end of their ropes with these tests, and they go, "Well, wait a minute, I've been studying my butt off. I've been doing some sort of on-demand course, or I've been sitting there with a book, or I did a Kaplan course, and my score is still not moving." But why mm-hmm. is that? Um, and I always really enjoyed those kinds of students where it's like, well, wait a minute, you seem to know your stuff. Like you've got the the formulas memorized and you're a pretty good reader and your vocabulary is pretty good. What's going on here? Um, so a lot of what we do is we kind of unpeel that onion and figure out, well, what is it behaviorally? Is it is it something about mm-hmm. your process where you get sloppy? Is it something about your mindset on test day? Is it something where you understand, let's say, the geometry formulas, but then when you look at an actual question, you start overthinking or you're a good reader, but when you get to the test, you start inserting all this out, outside information and try to kind of get inside people's heads and figure out um, sort of the deeper causes of that underperformance. So that's most of what we do. We've got seven full-time tutors now and a little staff nice. of performance experts. So, Yeah, that's very cool. And I think that's actually a great segue kind of into our topic for today, which is why don't people's practice test scores match their actual GRE scores, right? And in generally speaking, it sounds like a lot of the people that you work with are people where like they should be able to get the score that they want just in terms of like, can you do this problem? Yes. Can you do it in 90 seconds? Also, yes. Can you do it in 90 seconds back to back for four hours? Well, that's maybe where it's getting a little hard, right? So... Yeah. I mean, just take it away. Like, what? why don't practice test scores match the real test scores? Yeah. I mean, I'll kind of start with the, the simpler reasons that I think people sometimes overlook, which is, well, if you're taking non-official practice tests, sometimes it's just not very accurate. Um, and one thing that I think I think every GRE test taker should have in the back of their heads or maybe the front of their heads is that when ETS goes and creates these questions, they're spending thousands of dollars and, and often a couple of years in the process of developing these questions. So writing the question, testing it, um, going back, revising it, testing it again, IDing the stats, throwing some away, keeping some of them. It is a really long and really intense, really expensive process. So when you think about every question costing, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars to develop, um, it is almost impossible for even the very best test prep companies to write anything that's anywhere near as comparable in terms of its um validity, I suppose, but also in terms of its ability to really mimic the test. It's really hard to do. So if you go take a test from someplace like, you know, Kaplan or Manhattan or, or any of those companies, and, and no disrespect to any of them, by the way, I had a wonderful experience at Kaplan, so none of this is sour grapes. Um, right. Yeah. What, what do we expect out of Kaplan, realistically, to be totally fair, mm-hmm. even if they're nailing it and doing a great job, the tests aren't perfect. And so one thing that happens, people take a ton of these um non-official practice tests and mm-hmm. they've maybe gotten very good at Kaplan's questions when they get to the real ones and it's not the same and they don't perform as well or maybe they even freak out about it. Um, right. And then as we kind of go down the line, we get kind of sneakier things that come in that I think are a little bit harder for a test taker to, to recognize are going on. One of the biggest ones is that um, everybody in the test prep industry and myself very much included. So we write our own practice questions for quant in particular for a GRE students. So they get extra reps on particular topics. Well, what do we base them on? We base them off those official practice tests, right? Among other things, it's official questions, GRE releases. There's a limited number of them. So then we go to write practice sets. They're based on the practice questions. And then you go to the exam right. And you're going to see a little bit of a different set of questions. So that's kind of a sneaky way that even if you haven't seen any of the, so even if you haven't been taking bad practice tests, you've relied entirely on those official GRE power prep tests and you're right, taking exactly. them once each. 
sometimes we can inflate your scores on those a little bit unwittingly just by giving you practice questions that are going to make you better at those but then the actual exam covers the same domain of, of math and verbal reasoning but it might be just different enough that maybe there's a little bit of a letdown in your score small but right well and, and what we see sometimes too is that um like we we kind of teach by tactic right or teach by like sort of problem type and then what what often happens is on like on the test they will layer different problems sort of almost like a like a uh nesting doll right in such a way that like you have to recognize like okay i gotta do this and then that gets me here and then i gotta do this and that gets me here but that's like a different skill set than just practicing you know each step of those individually exactly and i think you can kind of get to a point where you know, if we as a test prep community, let's say, if we've written a bunch of questions that have very similar steps to what you see in the official GRE practice tests, mm -hmm. then a test taker can come in and kind of learn that very step-based approach and do nicely on the practice test. But if they haven't developed sort of a breadth of understanding of, of what's going on in that, that particular area of, let's say, math, and they get yeah. the real thing and they're not quite ready for that next variant of it. And again, I don't think that's the biggest effect, but that's one reason why you might lose maybe it's only a couple points per section, but it can happen. Yeah, it's 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 it is just I mean, and it's frankly like more power to the test makers ETS, right? Because it is kind of the point is it's supposed to be a problem solving test and not just a memorization one. Uh, but the the leap from this is something I have memorized to I have to figure this out still is hard. Yeah. Kind of no matter who you are. Yeah. Exactly. Um, another reason that, that people sometimes see that that drop off on test day is just if they've repeated the official practice tests. And that's a pretty obvious one. But I, I think the part about it that can be sneaky is that you take a, let's say you take your first, you take GRE official power prep test number one mm -hmm. before you start studying, you go study. Uh, and then three months later, let's say you go and you retake test number one. And you go, well, I didn't remember very much of it at all. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that inflated. But in reality, you've probably seen 30, 40, 50, 60% of the questions before. And even right. the ones you don't remember consciously, it helps your timing a ton. So right. even with no memory of it, you're racing through it so much faster. If I give you some novel you read 15 years ago and you have no memory of it, you're going to read it so much faster and understand it so much more deeply than you did the first time, even if your memory of it is, is totally gone consciously. So right. all of a sudden, the timing is a totally different animal and your score is inflated on that practice test and you get to the actual exam and you're scrambling for time and and there you go you go down the, the right. sinkhole so something that we do that's that's pretty cool um is actually we we all of our like quant questions and and a good number of our verbal are ra randomized to counteract that exact problem so you know you'll see it'll be like you know, you've got a you've got a right triangle with you know the long side is is a length of five. What is the perimeter? And then the next time you see it, it'll be seven. And the next time you see it, it'll be like fourteen, right? So it just it helps shake up. And we we do a much more advanced stuff than that, but that's just a good simple example. I think like that is a big shake up thing that's really important. Just like giving people new questions to answer every time, even if it's the same underlying concept. So typically you're not having students repeat questions at all. So when they miss a question, let's say with, uh, yeah, yeah. let's say there's a hypotenuse of a right triangle, you might give them a similar question to mm -hmm. sort of revise that concept, but you're not giving them the same question a second time. Yeah. Oh, so we, we give, we, we reuse our, our concepts, but we randomize the numbers within. 
Um, so that's how we awesome. do it, actually. But we still we have a lot of concepts. So yeah, <laughs> it's both for us. But we're a self-serve course, so we build it once and then it just kind of runs, right? Um, but very cool. So then you mentioned the other part of of things, which is really kind of, there's underperformance on test day due to the fact that like, yes, this is probably a little bit harder, but then there's also all the other aspects of underperformance, which is really like psychology and anxiety and even just like, uh, you know, fitness and health. So we'd love to hear more about your guys' approach to that because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I think kind of over the last 20 plus years that we've kind of tried to unpeel that onion of you know, why are these super high performing students struggling on test day, even after we've kind of eliminated the other things. So let's say somebody mm-hmm. comes to us and, and we work from the very start and we're really careful about how we manage their materials. And this isn't an issue of, you know, misinterpreting exam practice test scores or anything like that. Why do people still walk in and sometimes lose, you know, five or 10 points on their composite? The, I think the two most kind of obvious answers are test anxiety and kind of related thing that's just inconsistency in general. Talk about the inconsistency aspect first, that I think what what everybody should be striving for as they study for the GRE is that for any given question type, uh, they have a, a very consistent process they can repeat and they can repeat it consciously. So for right. example, on um, text completion, the way they handle that should be exactly the same every time. So mm-hmm. You read the sentence, and, and again, there's different ways that different companies could teach this, but let's say that you sure, read the yeah, sentence, yeah. you know, get your head around the overall meaning, you think about the role that the blank would play, you think about exactly what it is that that blank needs to be doing in relation to something else in the sentence, and then you start using cross-elimination maybe in a certain way on, on those answer choices. Okay, great. Now, whatever that process is, and we can argue about what's optimal for any given question type, but... I would argue that every test taker needs to have a way that they're doing text completion that is 100% systematic every single time. Reading comp, same thing. Um, sense equivalence, anything. And one of the things I, th- I think we see a lot in, in our incoming students who've already studied a ton, maybe taken some courses or had another tutor, they'll come in and say, well, I, I do reading comprehension a little bit different depending on the day. Well, what does that mean? Well, if I'm running out of time, I read faster. Well, yeah, now your results are going to be all over the place. Well, what kind of notes do you take? Well, it depends. Well, that's not good either. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one really, really strong force is if the, the process underlying how they, how they do things isn't the same every single time, those mm-hmm. results are going to blow in the wind and you put them under a little bit of pressure on test day and it's likely to go in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Right, exactly. And the anxiety thing is, is um, I think when we first started really thinking about it deeply, you know, maybe a decade ago, it sounded like a simple thing. Well, how do we get you to be less nervous? How do we calm those butterflies in your stomach? And we started, right. and we started to kind of think more about it. And as we kind of experimented with different things with different students, we realized that it's not as simple as the butterflies in the stomach. First of all, I think how you feel doesn't necessarily match whether there's actually anxiety going on. Uh, so for example, um, you know, I started to meet all these students who would say, oh, I felt, I, I felt fine on test day. Like, well, your scores tell me you didn't feel fine. No, no, totally. I, I felt great. I swear. I wasn't nervous at all. Like, well, go sleep on it and talk to me tomorrow. Um, and talk to the student the next day. And they're like, I completely blacked it out. Yeah, I was totally nervous. Um, or hmm. you'll hear people say, well, I didn't feel nervous, but I was just having a hard time reading. My brain was fuzzy. Yeah, that very likely is anxiety. Or hmm. I didn't sleep the night before but I felt fine during the test. That's really common. You might not feel jittery in the moment when you're staring at the test, 
but your mind is so caught up in thinking about what's going to happen the night before you don't sleep. And then of course your brain's going to be applesauce the next day and you're not going to do as well. So anxiety is a really, really sneaky thing that doesn't feel, doesn't always feel the way we think it should feel. Um, and then as we kind of start unpeeling the onion from there, it's like, well, what do you do about it? Um, and there, there's a whole lot of different ways you can approach it. Um, one of the big things we teach our students is how do you reset during the exam? So let's say that you start to feel like your brain's getting fuzzy or you start to feel consciously nervous um, and your palms are sweaty and, and you're having a hard time. You're, you're bumbling with a calculator and you can't quite get the numbers in there because your hands are shaking. Um, okay, great. You push yourself away from the computer uh, close your eyes, take three deep breaths. And there's different variants of those reset routines. We work with a sports psychologist to help train people in kind of finding a, a reset routine that works for them. That's one way to combat it. Um, one is mindfulness meditation. And I am personally not a big meditation guy at all. Right. But there's a ton of research that says that meditation improves your working memory. Uh, mm -hmm. It certainly helps your anxiety. It helps you refocus on the task at hand. So we actually employ a meditation coach now uh, who can help students to kind of be more present in the moment. Very cool. Um, the other things we started to get into is, well, to what extent does your physical health impact your mental health um, and, and mm -hmm. your, your performance on a cognitive task? And some of that's really obvious, right? If you don't get enough sleep, if you're not going to perform as well. So we have a sleep coach on staff now. If folks are having a hard time just you know, figuring out how to be really regular about getting that seven to nine hours of sleep, what are mm -hmm. the things they might need to do differently? Um, obviously, a ton of research on physical health and, and mental performance. I think the, the part that I, I think I wasn't totally aware of is the link between when you're successful with an exercise program, however you might define that for yourself, not necessarily that you're bench pressing Volkswagens, but that you get used to that feeling. <laughs> if that's your thing, great. But if you get to the point where you kind of say, well, wait a minute, um, I'm getting used to being out of breath. I'm getting used to working hard. I'm getting used to achieving goals, even if they're small. Um, there's a really strong link between that and what psychologists call self-efficacy. And there's a strong link between self-efficacy mm. and anxiety on something like, like a test or any sort of performance that matters to you. So one mm. of the things we found in working with, um, we actually work with a personal trainer as a degree in psychology, is that as our students become um, more confident and and regular with whatever that exercise routine is. And it might be something really simple, like just carving out 20 minutes a day to go for a walk, which is really hard for busy, high achieving people to do that. We can mm -hmm. measure their self-efficacy going up and then see their, their test day performance improve. Very cool. It's not, I feel like, um, for people at home, how would you recommend they, I mean, like going for walks, pretty straightforward, meditating. These are things you can do on your own. Um, but the measurement is something that I personally haven't come across before. So like when you're talking about like seeing people's self-efficacy rise, is that something that you like measure with numbers? And is there a way that you do that? Yeah. And that might be maybe going deeper down the rabbit hole than most, you know, most people listening to this at home might want to do. But yeah, there, there are um, inventories that psychologists have developed where you can go and you can take a little you know, 20 question inventory and it'll spit out a number that says, here's, here's where you are on self-efficacy. So we, cool. we've actually integrated some of that into our program. Um, and we're in the process of putting up, um, it, it doesn't have self-efficacy exactly in it, but a, uh, a factor assessment quiz that that's up on our website should be up the next week or two here. Um, where if you feel like there's performance issues, you can take this quiz and it'll say, okay, in terms of your mental skills, your mindfulness, mm -hmm. uh, your, 
the quality of your sleep, duration of your sleep, uh, quality of nutrition, whether that's affecting your mental performance. It'll kind of spit out some of those outputs and say kind of on these five different dimensions, where is it that you might need some work? If, if it right. looks like you might benefit from better exercise, the quiz will spit out that result and say, yeah, you have some work to do here. Um, so you don't necessarily need to get super deep into the underlying constructs. Um, but we've developed a series of tools that, you know, we have up on our website for free that can let people say, yeah, these are, um, I could use work in exercise or nutrition or sleep or mindfulness right. or mental skills in general. Very cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, I love that you guys have that. Uh, so yeah, we'll definitely, I will see if I can put it in the description or something like that, but otherwise it's the GMAT Ninja website. Yep. It'll be right there um, on our homepage. So at gmatninja.com. Great. Very cool. Well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, this has been a really lovely time and really loved having <clears> you on the call. Thank you, Charles, for your time today. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Just do you want to say any parting thoughts just about what you do at uh, at your business before we log off? Sure. So if, if you're looking for kind of that, that uh, if you're really struggling to figure out what's going on and why you're struggling on the GRE or GMAT or LSAT or executive assessment, we're the guys that really have a good time saying, okay, let's let's see how deep of a dive we can do inside your head and figure out exactly what's underneath there. So sure, we enjoy teaching the you know stats and geometry and vocab <laughs> and reading and all that stuff. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But uh, if you're worried about kind of that next level of things and, and you think you've learned the things but don't know why it's not coming together, those are problems we love solving. So if that's your thing, shoot us an email and we'll see if we can help. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable. Our GRE, you can try out Achievable's GRE course for free at achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.